As the kids are dismissed, you can turn to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to cover the whole chapter. And, and I turned right there when I opened my Bible. I didn't have a bookmark in it or anything. I always love it when that happens. Just right to the page. I didn't do that first service, so I'm happy with myself now. <laughs> Ruth is after Judges, right before 1 Samuel. It's a, a smaller book, so it's easy to miss. But there's a lot in it. There's a lot in chapter 2 that we have to get through and get to get through this morning. As we begin, I'll tell you a story which, so far as I know, is true, and so far as I've been able to discern from the experts on the internet. In July of 1975, newspapers in a number of countries told the story of the tragic death of a 17-year-old by the name of Erskine Lawrence Evan. Erskine was tragically killed being knocked off of his moped by a taxi in Hamilton, Bermuda. Now, that in and of itself isn't all that newsworthy. The reason this story was spread to multiple news outlets, multiple nations, is because almost exactly a year earlier, his older brother, Neville, was also killed being knocked off a moped on that same street. And you might say, well, that's not all that coincidental. They probably lived in the same area. Erskine was just riding his older brother's moped, and they had the same moped and the same street. That's not all that coincidental. But consider this. They were both killed almost a year apart by being hit by the same taxi. Not they were both hit by a taxi. They were hit by the same taxi who was being driven by the same driver who had the same passenger in the back. So at that point, it gets creepy. And at that point, you start to wonder, that can't be just accident. There had to be some reason behind that. It seems almost too coincidental to just be accidental. And that's what's going on in our story this morning. There is a meeting that happens between Ruth and Boaz that is too coincidental. It just can't be accidental. And when something isn't accidental, you have to wonder, why is it happening? There must be some design, some reason, some purpose behind this. And I'm sure the parents are wondering, what was the purpose behind that? We can wonder, what is the purpose behind this uh, coincidental meeting that we have in our story? And of course, it's there to teach us, as all scripture is, it's there to teach us something about God and the way he works. And the way I would sum it up from this story is that the Lord sovereignly provides through a benevolent redeemer. So this is God's sovereignty in action, and he is sovereignly orchestrating things to provide for his people. And what does he provide? A benevolent redeemer. But note, he doesn't just provide a benevolent redeemer, he provides through a benevolent redeemer. So what we have going on in this chapter, that I want you to wrap your head around, I want us to wrap our heads around, is that God is working and orchestrating things, but he's doing so through his people. Not independent of his people, but he's working through means, as you would call it. God uses people to accomplish his purposes, and that's what's going on in the chapter this morning. God works for and through his people, and he cares for small, insignificant people like Naomi and Ruth. If you know the story up to now, you know that Naomi and Ruth are uh, from Moab. Naomi is an Israelite, but she moved over to Moab when there was a famine in Israel. She and her husband and her two sons, and while they were there, Naomi was widowed, and her two sons died as well. So then she was left with her two daughters-in-law, and on the return home, she finally came back to Bethlehem because there was food again. 
Ruth stuck with her. Ruth was a Moabite, and she stayed with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She followed her in that great confession, that conversion, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Ruth came over and became really in some ways an Israelite. And she came over with Naomi. But Naomi is still reeling from that, and where we left her last is she was bitter with the Lord. She wanted to be called bitter, and she was upset with God and said, call me bitter because God has dealt bitterly with me. She's down and out. She's feeling helpless, it seems. And what we see in this chapter is the Lord begin to work things out, or really continue to work things out to provide for her through Ruth. We're going to break this chapter up into three sections. We'll focus loosely on Ruth, and then Boaz, and then Naomi as they all interact here. We start off in verses 1 through 7 and see Ruth's initiative. That's how I've labeled the section Ruth's initiative. Here, Ruth kind of takes, the, uh, takes initiative. She shows her hustle, her work ethic. She takes action, verses 1 through 7. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So chapter 2 begins by introducing us to a character who we're going to meet in a couple of verses. His name is Boaz. He is of the clan of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. He's of the same family, and the text is going to remind you of that a couple of times because that's important. Boaz happens to be part of the same family, the same tribe, same clan, as Elimelech and Naomi, and through them, Ruth as well. That'll be important. We also learn he is worthy, as the ESV translates it. That means he is a man of status and dignity and respect in the community. It probably also means he's wealthy, and that is indicated by the fact that he owns this field and probably several others. So he's a worthy man, and it also talks about his character. It speaks to he is a good man. He is worthy. He's if you'll allow me, like Captain America, in that he can pick up Mjolnir, right? He is worthy. Thank you, some of you who get that reference. So we're to think well of him. And the author wants us to know this guy's going to be here soon. I'm going to introduce you to him. Let's go back to Ruth and Naomi. Ruth decides to go out gleaning. She tells Naomi, I'm going to go out gleaning. This is where she takes initiative and goes out to provide for Naomi and Ruth. What is gleaning? Gleaning was kind of a form of divinely commanded and instituted welfare in Israel. Leviticus 19, 9-10 says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So that was... 
gleaning was this law, or was prescribed, that when you harvested your field and your crops and all that, to leave some, leave the edges, leave the scraps for the poor and the needy so they can come along and gather for themselves. So the reapers, as they were harvesting, they would pick up stalks of grain with their left hand, cut them off with the sickle in their right hand, and they would gather grain in their left, and then when they couldn't carry it anymore, they'd leave it in the bundle and drop it on the ground, and then the female servants would come, and they'd tie up the bundles together, and they'd have their bundles that they harvested. They were efficient in that process, but there was always going to be scraps left behind. You can't get every single head. So there'd be scraps left behind, and the gleaners would come, and they could pick up the scraps left over. And the law was, for those of you who own a field and for you harvesters and reapers, don't get every last scrap. Be okay with that which you leave behind. That's for others. That's for the poor, for the need for them to come. And don't harvest to the edges of your field. Leave some unharvested. Leave some trees unpicked so that others can come and get what they need. It was God's way of calling his people to be generous. Why? Because you remember what it was like to be hungry in Egypt. You remember what it was like to be poor and needy and destitute to be in famine. So, when God provides and you have more than you need, don't take it all for yourself. Don't hoard it all for yourself. Set aside some for those less privileged. This is the heart of God in his word, through his law, to be compassionate on those in need. And notice, those who are in need are to go and work for it. So that grain wasn't going to end up in Naomi's home unless Ruth went out and gleaned and gathered and put in the work. If they are to eat, God has designed a system by which they can go out and gather for themselves. Ruth understands this, so she goes out and she puts in the work. And it just so happens that she chooses the field of Boaz. Verse 3 says, we set out, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Our English translations maybe aren't able to do justice the meaning of that phrase happened, or that word just so happened. The Hebrew reads kind of literally, she happened to happen, or by chance she chanced. It's emphasizing that happening almost with quotation figures. She just so happened to come to the field of Boaz. Wouldn't you know it? What are the odds? The narrator's winking and nodding at you that this is just some random thing that happened, and by doing that, saying this isn't really random, she goes to Boaz's field, and Boaz enters the scene. We've heard of him, and now we see him. We see his goodness in action. He comes, and he blesses his workers. The Lord bless you. And they respond with, the Lord be with you. And either they like him and love him, so they're bringing the blessing back to him, or they're afraid of him, so they're not going to say otherwise. Like, yeah, Lord bless you too, boss. I think it's the former. I think it's the, that Boaz has created a godly environment here. We praise over his workers, and his workers do the same. And throughout this chapter, there are a number of spoken prayers and blessings. That's kind of the, the environment, the culture that has been set by Boaz. He's a, a good man, and we're to see him as such as he enters into the narrative. And he knows all his workers, he knows who they are, but there's one person he doesn't recognize. He says, who is this? He talks to his foreman, the head reaper. He says, who is that girl? But notice the way it's worded. Maybe you picked up on this. It doesn't say, who is she? It says, whose is she? 
It's a way of asking, who does she belong to? Does she have a husband? Does she have a family, a clan, belonging, a community? Who does she belong to? And that's the question that will kind of flow through this text. Who do, where does she belong? Where does she fit in? We can see she's a hard worker. The reaper notices she's been here since morning cleaning and she's hardly taken a break. She's sort of an anti-millennial. She, as I told the first service, I can say that because I am one. She works hard without a break. She takes the initiative. And she happens to choose Boaz's field, and Boaz takes notice of her. Now, at this point in the story, we can pause and ask, who is responsible for this good luck that Ruth has had happening to land in Boaz's field? Did this happen because of the initiative that Ruth took and her effort? Or was it God's providence that he ordained things just so that it would be so? We've talked about it in sermons before, Christians have debated this from the beginning of Christianity, this uh, tension, or how do we understand God's sovereignty and God's ordination of all things and his lordship at work and his will and human agency and human will and human choice and how do those things play with one another and, and what is to win out? What's more important? Do we have free will or are we just following in the path that God has ordained for us? And as we read Ruth, it should be clear that the answer is both. Like there are two errors that we can go down. There's a lot of literature and a lot of debate throughout history, more so than we could ever um, comprehend in our lifetimes on this subject. But there are two broad errors you can make. Uh, I would say that one broad error is what I would call libertarianism. And I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about Lord's sovereignty and human will. And libertarianism is the idea that we have total free will and we can do whatever we want and God doesn't get in the way or get involved and we have free will. And God so adores our free will that he would never interfere with our choice. That's libertarianism, and that is an error in Scripture. The other error, I would say, is determinism, where it says, doesn't matter what we choose, we aren't responsible, God is sovereign, he controls all things, he directs all things, and it's his responsibility, and we are just robots following out what God has done. That is also an error in Scripture. I think a best way to sum that up is a word and a term called compatibilism. I think I've used it before here. Broadly, broadly speaking, compatibilism is both are true. And they aren't in contrast with one another, but lovingly in tension with one another. That God's will is done as is ours. That we have real responsible will and choice, and we never act outside of the sphere of God's sovereignty and lordship, and he directs our paths. And that's what's happening here with Ruth. I think if you asked her, she would say, I deliberately chose that field. I turned there, I moved my legs, and I walked onto that field. And God directed the steps. And we might ask, how much does God direct the steps? Or like, does he care about small people and small things? Does God only direct the paths of big choices? 
and big things? Is God only sovereign over the people that are really important? Or is God sovereign over all things? Does he get involved in all choices? I think Jesus answers the question for us in some way in Matthew 10:29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? So in other words, the cheapest of animals doesn't die without God's knowledge and sovereignty. And the smallest decision, even if it's a decision over where I'm going to work today, which field, God is sovereign over. He is providential over. He cares over. And he cares for Ruth, the small person's insignificant person, even her insignificant choices, and he will work good through that. He has created Ruth so that she could walk in the good works he prepared, to borrow language from Paul. And we'll see how much God will care for this insignificant person and family in verses 8 through 17. Here we're going to see God work through Boaz and Boaz's kindness. We've seen Ruth's initiative as she takes the steps to go and glean. And that'll be matched by Boaz's kindness in verses 8 through 17. Boaz's kindness. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel into the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. So once Boaz learns who Ruth is, he goes to her, she can call or calls her over to him, but she has, he has a conversation with her. And he calls her, notice, my daughter. Same thing Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter. There's a question that goes through the whole book of Ruth, and particularly this chapter of where does Ruth belong? And a couple times in the chapter, you'll notice it calls her Ruth the Moabite. I don't think the text says that to exclude her, but actually to remind us of where she came from so that we might marvel at her inclusion. That reminder, she was a Moabite, but now she's being called my daughter. And Boaz is basically saying, you're part of my family here. And in fact, as part of my family, I don't want you to go anywhere else. Stay in this field, glean here, 
You'll be safe among my workers. Uh, Stay with my women, which is a way of saying you'll have community here. You won't be alone. You'll be among my women. And, And I've already told my guys, I'm telling them, don't touch her. Now, maybe he has ulterior motives. We'll get there. But really what that's all about is it's a protection for her because the relationship between reapers and gleaners wasn't always favorable. And you can imagine how that would be so as reapers are going and harvesting their field and trying to gather for their bosses and all that. Then you have some gleaners come behind trying to pull out as much as they can or leave what's left behind. There's opportunity for conflict if neither are acting righteously in that scenario. So there was oftentimes reapers would maybe not treat gleaners so kindly particularly if one of those gleaners was a foreigner, a Moabite single woman. She was vulnerable. So Boaz here is providing a place of work that is safe for her, where she won't be harassed because he's a good boss. He's protecting her. And he says, you don't even have to bring a water bottle from home. You can come draw from our vessels. She responds in thankfulness. What have I done to deserve this? Why such kindness? Boaz says, your reputation precedes you. I've heard how you left your family, left all behind. Because that Boaz asked God to bless her in some way. May the Lord repay you and reward you in full for all that you've done. And we'll learn that sometimes God answers prayers through the one praying. Lord, help that neighbor. God might respond by helping that neighbor through you, through the one praying. And that's what's going to happen here. Boaz is going to be the one who helps her. He invites her to dinner. They're all going to have lunch together. He says, you can have a seat at my table. Come, eat with us. You don't have to be an outcast. You don't have to be an outsider. You can come and sit with my people. You may eat until you are full. Remember what Naomi said at the end of chapter 1? We've come back empty. We've come back hungry, and now Ruth is able to eat until she is satisfied so much so that she's able to take a doggy bag home. She has leftovers. She's no longer empty but full. And during the meal, beyond that, Boaz says, come and sit by my side and dip your bread, dip your morsel in the wine. That was either actual wine as we know it, or it was a kind of a vinegar sauce that you would dip bread in, kind of like what you'd get in an Italian restaurant, the oil and vinegar, and you dip the complimentary bread and that kind of thing. But either way, it was Boaz saying, you're part of us and no part of my table will be off limits to you. You don't have to just have the scraps. You can have the best parts. It's full inclusion. And there may be a hint of flirtation in this. As you read that, you may think, was there some type of innuendo? Maybe. The author may be hinting at that. But the bigger part is, this is inclusion. It's Boaz bringing an outsider into his table fellowship. And we can't help but be reminded of, well, really what we see at the front of the room. We see tables with bread, not wine, juice, close enough. And we have the master inviting outsiders, strangers, aliens, foreigners to come, be part of my table, Dip the bread in the wine. Come and eat. Boaz reflects the heart of God. He foreshadows the action of Jesus who will come and bring outsiders in, strangers and aliens in. Because he, just as 
Jesus eats with tax collectors. Moab eats with a despised woman. It's welcoming. You're included here. It's the heart of God. It should be the heart of his people. Are you a stranger? Are you an alien? Do you not have a place to be? Come be with us. Eat at our table. I think there's direct application for those of you who are kids in school. You started school this week, right? At lunchtime, if you see a kid who's all by himself, doesn't have a place to be, you can say, hey, come eat with us. Come be a part of us. Come hang out with us. So if you're like me, you've been that kid before who doesn't have a place to eat and he feels a little bit awkward and doesn't know where to go, doesn't have a place to belong. Well, no one should ever be without belonging in the body of Christ. And wherever Christians go, they should go with an attitude of welcoming and bringing in and come eat with us and be part of us. Have a place to belong. It's God's heart at Boaz's heart, and Boaz shows even more kindness as the day goes on. After lunch, he, Ruth goes back to gleaning, and he tells his workers, don't stop her. Whatever she does, let her do it. In fact, I want you to have a little bit fall off the back of the truck, so to speak. He asks his reapers to leave a little bit extra for Ruth. What Boaz is doing is going above and beyond the heart of the law. The law required, you know, whatever you leave behind, leave it for the gleaners. Boaz goes, goes above and beyond that and says, I'm going to make sure to leave something behind. I'm going to intentionally not take everything and leave some behind for Ruth so that she's able to gather all she needs. And she does. She works till evening. She gathers an ephah, which by our best estimate is almost 30 pounds of grain, which is a lot. It's about a few weeks' worth of provisions that she's able to collect in a day. And why is she able to collect so much? Because that's what happens when God provides through his righteous people. God is orchestrating the provision and his righteous people are showing us examples of how to live in God's righteousness. I think as we read this, we should come away from this remarking how wonderful God's sovereign provision is and then also saying we should be like Ruth and Boaz. Like they are moral examples for us in this story. And particularly I want to point out something that I think is countercultural to our day and our culture, something that is not common as we look around the world today, and that is both in Ruth and Boaz, their total lack of entitlement, their lack of selfishness or self-centeredness, both of their humility. Think about it from Ruth's perspective, her lack of entitlement. What happens when Boaz is kind to her and gives to her? She is totally humble, so that I don't deserve this. This is wonderful of you. How come God has been so kind to me? She even says at one point, like, I'm your servant, even though I'm not even one of your servants. I'm not one of your servants. I'm not worthy to be called one of your servants. I haven't been included in your people, but I will be. She shows total humility at somebody else's goodness to her. She doesn't say, well, yeah, I deserve that much because I worked and I put in the work and I deserve all that's come to me, right? That's how our athletes sound. That's how our celebrities sound. Yeah, I deserve this. This is me. I want it. I did it. It's all me. That's what our culture sounds like. That's not what Ruth sounds like. Ruth says, I'm your humble servant. I, I don't know why you've been so kind to me. Thank you. She has graciousness. 
She is not entitled. And neither is Boaz. Boaz is, has no entitlement because he has all this wealth. And he doesn't say, well, I got it all by my own work and my own effort, so I'm going to hold on to it. And if you want some of what I have, then you better work for it too. No, Boaz is generous and gracious with his wealth, knowing that it came from the Lord by his sovereign hand, so he doesn't feel entitled to all of his own possessions. He says, you can have what you need. He isn't even entitled with his own family. He says, you can be part of us. He is generous and gracious and open-handed with what he has, knowing that it has all come from the Lord. Both of them, I think, are moral examples for us. In hard work, in thankfulness, in graciousness, in generosity, in open-handedness, caring, for others, not looking down, but helping. Ruth's initiative is matched by Boaz's kindness. And I think in that we have what God wants his kingdom to look like. Generosity and help, humility and faithfulness. Over the course of the book, we'll see that Boaz's kindness goes further, and Naomi begins to realize that that's a possibility, and that's what happens in verses 18 through 23. We'll focus on Naomi's reaction here, Naomi's epiphany. She comes to a realization that may change the course of their lives. Naomi's epiphany. Verse 18. And she, Ruth, took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. I think here's the moment where we all fall in love with Ruth because we realize she carried 30 pounds home. And somehow she was able to manage that, and she carried it home to Naomi, and Naomi is shocked, saying, wow. All right, she, she not only carries the 30 pounds home, she comes with the leftovers. Right? Ruth is that person at the potluck we all love. That She didn't just bring a bag of chips. Like She brought appetizer, entree, and dessert. She is providing And Naomi's impressed by it. And Naomi is discerning. She understands that Ruth must have had help or favor from somebody to get this much. She's like, where did you go? How did you get that much? Who noticed you? Because somebody had to help you to get that much. Ruth tells her is a man by the name of Boaz. And Naomi offers another prayer, another blessing in this chapter. She says, may he, Boaz... Be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. As you look at that verse, some of you grammar and syntax nerds may have a question. 
as you look at that, may he, but as be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And the question is, who is the whose? When it talks about that person's kindness who has not forsaken us, that whose could refer back to Boaz, or it could refer to the Lord. So the question is, is this talking about Boaz's kindness and not forsaking us, or the Lord's kindness and not forsaking us? And if it is the Lord's kindness, what a dramatic turn for Naomi, who previously said, God is against me, and now she's saying, his kindness has not forsaken us. As I read through commentaries, uh, I found that they were all over the place. And some were convinced that the Hebrew must be that this is referring to Boaz, and others were equally convinced the other way. So I land in the middle and say it must be both. That the whose kindness that Naomi is talking about is Boaz and the Lord, and she's remarking at how God had worked through this man. God is at work here, and this man has blessed us. God is providing. And Naomi realizes what it might be that God is providing. She says, Boaz is a redeemer. He is a potential redeemer for us. Now, what's a redeemer? The concept is laid out in Leviticus 25, verses 25 through 55 or so. I'm not going to read that. It's too much text. But the basic concept is, in Israel, if a man's, if a man came into poverty, he had to sell his property or his home just to survive or sell his own self into servitude to survive. His home, his property, himself might be now owned by somebody else. And a redeemer was a family member, a brother, a cousin, or somebody within the same tribe who could buy that person or his property back so he could have possession of it again. And the reason that's so important is because Israel's economy is different from ours. Israel's economy is based on land and ownership. And there's only so much of it. Israel's only so big. It's a portion by tribe. So each family and clan is only going to get so much land. So if you sell your land or sell yourself into service and are owned by another, then that precludes future generations from having that wealth. It cuts off your family line from a line of wealth in the land. So redemption is the ability to buy back that land so that your future generations can be provided for and you have that land, it stays in your family, in your inheritance. So Redeemer is a family member who would have the opportunity, the privilege to buy that back. Similar to what we talked about last week, laws of lever at marriage, where a lever, a brother or family member, could marry the widow of his brother or cousin, and that would be a means of providing for her, protecting her, and then keeping their kids in the family. And they would have the name and the inheritance of a deceased man. Both of those things are means by which God provides redemption for his people through the law. Boaz could be a potential redeemer for them and buy back what was lost, provide them protection, give them a future. Because he's family. And their family obligations, the closest I can think of in our culture is like next of kin who are obliged to take care of the estate of the deceased. So Naomi has an epiphany. This man is a redeemer and he could provide for us. And in fact, he already is. Ruth, for now, has a place to work through two harvests, barley and wheat. 
Boaz doesn't just provide for her for a day, but for ongoing days into the future. And she'll be protected in that field. And Naomi says, it's good there. That you'll be protected, you'll be cared for. And Ruth will live with Naomi. And that's how the chapter ends, which I think is a hint that Ruth still doesn't have a home of her own. She's still staying with her mother-in-law. But there's hope. That through customs of the law, through their own work and actions, and through divine providence, that this whole situation could lead to redemption. God might be at work here redeeming his people. And for those of us in the 21st century as Christians, we know that that's what God has been doing this whole time. He has always been at work through divine providence, through his people, through his law, providing redeemer. There's something I was meditating on. I'm going to share with you because I think it's worthwhile to think about. That God had written into his law redemption. Through redeemer passages, leverant marriage, all these instances where God has means by which the poor and the needy and those who are destitute and need help can be taken care of. Outsiders, aliens, sojourners, strangers can be brought in and made part of the people of God. That God had written into his law redemption. Because when we think of law, we think of only commands and things that if we follow them, we'll be righteous and we'll be good. And God's law is all about just how we be better. And that's not really what God's law is about. God's law shows us the path of righteousness and shows us the path of goodness. That if you follow this law, things will go well for you. But then also in God's law is a lot about here's what you do when things go bad. Here's what you do when you sin. Here's what happens when you sin and curses fall upon you. Here's a way back. Here's how you repent and come back. If you're falling on hard times and you're poor and needy, here's how you can be redeemed. In God's law, there is a whole lot of understanding that his people will suffer. So there's redemption in it and that God long ago prescribed the means by which he would redeem his people. His law, in its very nature, is compassionate and merciful in the grace. In fact, God's law is grace to us. His word is grace. And he has orchestrated grace through his law and through providence and through his people. And we're going to see that as we go on in Ruth, that God is working redemption through his word and through his people. We're going to see it in Boaz. And then we're going to see it later on, far down the line, in one who is greater than Boaz, but a lot like him, just better. Another redeemer who will come and save and protect his people. Someone who, like Boaz, is a family member for us. He is part of our clan, part of our tribe. He became one of us in being born a human. Somebody who is like Boaz and that he gives bread to those who are in need. He feeds the hungry 5,000. He invites us to the table and says, dip the water, or dip the bread into the wine. He has pity on the outsider like Boaz, on the stranger. Ephesians 2 tells us that through Jesus Christ and the cross that God has brought near those who are far off, even those who are Americans, who aren't part of the tribe of Israel, those who would be strangers to God, except for God's grace and through the cross, he has brought all people near to himself and all those who confess and repent and follow will be brought to his table and eat with him just as Boaz ate with Ruth. And just as Boaz provided protection and provision for Ruth, not just for one day, but for many days, so Jesus provides ongoing care for his people. He doesn't drop them. Boaz isn't going to drop Ruth. Jesus doesn't drop his people. 
It's not just one day of provision for him and for us. It's ongoing through many seasons. God provides for his people through his people. He doesn't work up salvation in a lab far removed from humanity. But God is actually going to save humanity through a human, through his people, through his creation. As they take initiative and act, God is going to provide salvation through his people by his sovereign goodness. He will provide a redeemer. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace that we see in this story and in the book of Ruth that you are at work in your people no matter how insignificant. You're doing good things by your sovereign hand through us. We know we can't see it all all the time. We see only a small part. But we trust you. Not only that you're in control of all things, Lord, but that you're working them for good for those who love you. We thank you for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, that though we are far off, though we had lost everything, that we are in captivity to sin and death and Satan, Lord, that you have bought us and brought us back and purchased us, not with anything as worthless as gold, but you have bought us with the blood of Christ. Thank you for our Redeemer and for help in our time of need. Amen.